Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network, I'm Arij Noor. On today's Women on the Line, we hear part of an important discussion on feminism and violence as part of Karen Pickering's monthly talk show, Cherche La Femme. Cherche La Femme is in its fifth year and continues to bring many feminists from different walks of life into the same room to discuss a myriad of issues and ideas relating to feminism. There have been discussions about vastly different topics, including faith, ageing, selfies and hair, just to name a few. This talk in particular is quite heavy in that it discusses violence against women, and so I'd like to give a trigger warning to anyone who may feel affected by the discussions. You can access support services like Lifeline on 13 11 14 and 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. What you're about to listen to is only a small part of a much more in-depth talk. You can listen to the whole thing on the Cherche La Femme website and you can find that link on our program page. I wanna know if the days are dark where you are Can you keep it at bay? I wanna know if you fit into the silence Does it get in the way? What happens when the deluge is over? In light of the release of the Family Violence Report and Recommendations from the Royal Commission, this discussion of feminism and violence is especially important. We hear from Indigenous activist, unionist and commentator Celeste Little, President of Transgender Victoria Grace Lee, former employee of Shakti Women's Refuge Nabila Fahat, disability and sexuality activist and writer Jax Brown and CEO of Domestic Violence Victoria Fiona McCormack. This discussion is moderated by Karen Pickering, who's a feminist organiser, commentator and creator of Cherche La Femme. The discussion starts off with a question from Karen. We've got a situation where the mainstream media is now perhaps imperfectly starting to talk about violence against women, but not all women and not all violence against women um, seem to be talked about. So I was thinking of particular groups like um, Celeste, your project of counting um, how many of the women in, in those statistics are Indigenous um, is, is shocking and something that the, the mainstream media doesn't seem to pick up on. So how can we make sure that these stories are heard too and seen as part of the big, the big picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of started that count. Sorry, I'll just put that away. I was looking at a comment that I wrote the other day which was <laughs> along the lines of selfies kill women, parks kill women... <laughs> Drinking kills women, wearing high heel shoes kills women, everything but the men who Staying kill home, women. Staying home, going kill out. Kill women. Yeah. Um, yeah, Being yeah. married. <laughs> All of it. Very dangerous. Everything else is to blame. Um, but, you know, with regards to counting dead Aboriginal women, um, it was very helpful for me that Destroy the Joint and Real for Women started doing counts at the, about the same time looking at this. But... The one thing I noticed over and over again in the media, and partly it's cultural, but in a lot of cases, Aboriginal women aren't named. And it's because of, you know, it, it, it is because of adhering to co- cultural protocol. If someone passes away, then in a lot of areas in Australia, you don't say their name for a period of time. So these women were just sort of, oh, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my ears aren't too good. So I was no, hearing that and going, yeah, um, 
you know, a lot of these women, they, they end up getting reported and then there's nothing beyond that. And it's not like in other cases, um, particularly when it's a woman who's killed by a stranger, for example, and you get a lot more coverage around that because, you know, of how tragic it was that she was, um, she was just going about her daily life and was attacked by someone who wasn't known. Um, and yet people aren't horrified when it's a husband. Exactly. Like people exactly. go, oh, well, it, w- it was a domestic. And you just think that's that's more horrifying in a way. But, I mean, not that you want to quantify them, but it, it's bizarre. It is. It's really bizarre. So there will be the more of a public outcry when it's a stranger than when it's, um, when it's a husband. But in the Aboriginal context, the husband is actually... Um, you know, expanded to be the extended family a lot of the time. So domestic violence can actually be more like family violence where a bunch of people are living together and the perpetrator could be any one of them. Um, but, yeah, a lot of these women uh, are killed and in the, in the news reports not named. And so for me it was a it was a process of actually making sure that despite the fact that they weren't being named due to cultural protocol or even due to the fact that the media simply doesn't care um that their deaths were actually being highlighted and were being drawn out of this list that was accumulating over the years so Thus far, um, of the 67, at least 11, but my guess is at least 13, and I'm fairly certain there's some that have never made it to the media, but at least 13 of the 67 have actually been Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander women, which equates to roughly 18% of the list, which is six times what our population rate is. And to not look at that and to not look at how that, you know... How, how that would impact communities, how that would keep people on back feet, um, feet yeah. Would, it, to, I, I needed to do something about that. So that's, that's where that sits. And I think that, like I said, I think that there's, um, there is a perception out there in mainstream society that Aboriginal people bring it upon themselves because, you know, they'll live in areas that are not wealthy or they'll, they'll, they'll live with extended families or, you know, it's, it's the intersection of being a woman and being Indigenous and also in a lot of circumstances being poor that fa- that often fails to highlight these cases. So that's where I'm at, 18% is what I reckon. And so thinking about other groups as well that experience violence at levels that are so far above the average woman in the community, I'm thinking about trans women as well, um, Grace, you might be able to talk... I mean, we're talking about media reporting, like how it is reported in the media when trans women yeah, um, sure. are murdered, but also that just how often and, and the, the, the uh, likelihood that a trans woman will experience violence mm. in her life is much higher, that even, even than these, shock, these shocking... Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's always very difficult to try and gather all the information, but just talking about the media, so it's only... T- it's 12 months since, since you know, Mayang was murdered in Brisbane... Um, but what did the media do? Well, they told us about a she-male who was killed by and cooked by her chef husband or 
partner. For people who don't know, it's in Brisbane, Mayang Pretso, is that yes. the, the name? And yep. uh, a woman who was m- murdered by her partner uh, and the Courier Mail's front page, I think, did yeah. use the word That's she, right. I'm sorry. she male and maybe prostitute even. It, it, a, you know, not, not a word it, that... Um, it was totally, you know, focused on the sensationalism of, you know, totally irrelevant horrific. pieces of information. I think the picture of um, the dead woman w- that they ran was in a bikini or something. Yeah. So, I mean, just like yeah. every possible way they could way insult... That, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, to denigrate her and to put her in a position of, like, well, you know... But one, one thing it didn't do was, like, actually, like, was to, to address the fact that this was, you know, a domestic violence murder. Yeah. What was... Interesting, I guess. You know, what followed up was a massive backlash from both the trans and cisgender communities in terms of the way that that was reported. Um, you know, the Facebook, Twitter, everything was awash with major criticisms. People wrote to the newspapers, and, and you know, it actually created an opportunity to start to explain, I think, to the media just how these, how to report these sorts of incidents and how to actually be honest about them rather than this sort of sensationalising and dehumanising that, that we were seeing. Which, and as I say, I suppose, you know, because it was, this, this was a woman. She was a trans woman as well, and that 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 somehow degraded and a woman of her value. As well. Yeah, you know, you know, everything yeah. was kind of counting against her in the way that the media were approaching this. We know that members of the trans community, uh, violence is virtually an everyday occurrence, whether it's anonymous violence because it's abuse in the street, or it can be physical violence that's perpetrated against them. And the levels of interpersonal violence in terms of intimate partner violence are very high. Some reports are like as much as 40% of, of trans women report being physically assaulted by their intimate partners. Um, you know, th- these are terrifying statistics, but this isn't, you know, we're not, we're not trying to compare numbers necessarily. Mm. But um, so many women, you know, as well, I think trans women find it very difficult to report domestic violence. And there's very often not many opportunities where should they go because of the high levels of discrimination and stigmatisation that they also suffer. So not just from the media and the way that you know, the public are being, seeing them as being presented, but also you know, just finding the right sort of support yeah. is and, a real um, problem. Walking into a police station or... Yeah. Um, yeah. So thinking, thinking about that as well, about the rates of reporting, the difficulty with reporting, because it, it seems one of the victim-blaming narratives is, you know, why didn't she just go to the police? Why didn't she leave? Why didn't she protect herself? Um, and so I'm just thinking of the work that you've done, Nabila, and the being working as an advocate for women in particular communities where there are barriers to them reporting to the police. Maybe you could talk us through what some of those barriers are. In in migrant communities, whether, you know, they're from an Indian background or Middle Eastern or African, women don't talk about the fact that they're what's going on at home. It's usually swept under the rug. Um, we're taught from a very young age that women are just meant to suffer. It's It's something I've definitely grown up with. You just like deal with the cards that are dealt to you. Um, so a lot of the work that I've done, women, a lot of the women that I've dealt with in particular were women that have just come over and they're, they're new here. 
So one, they don't know what services are accessible. Two, they might be here on a spousal visa. So automatically they're not going to want to go and tell anybody because what that means is they're going to have to get deported back home and they probably don't want to go back home because their husband's family might actually have family members over there and their husband's threatened that if you go back home, well, you're just going to die anyway and I'll kill the rest of your family. So I've had women who have come and told me that. It's, um, I had another client who actually had an arranged marriage to um, a man over in England. They, um, the first time they met was actually in Dubai and the, the first meeting they had already agreed on getting married. At this point they'd gone married over the phone and then met in Dubai. Um, and that's when she realised he was a little bit abusive. Um, he would make comments about the way she dressed, things like that. When she got over to England, it was just only him and his family and her. She knew nobody. So it wasn't just the physical abuse, it was the emotional abuse and the financial abuse. She had no money, no family, nobody to talk to, complete isolation. Um, she ended up having two kids with this guy and I think when things got... Um, probably to the worst that they could be, she she flew back home on the, on the notion that she was going on a holiday here, but really she was escaping to come back home. And when she got back home, he was so manipulative that he actually had um, reported that she'd kidnapped the children and gone through Geneva to um, get the Commonwealth to get her to, to go back to England and the kids. And the, the worst part of it is that our government, when you try cases like this, it, we don't really look at the fact that he might be abusive or anything like that. It's just pure, well, this is what they've said needs to be done. She needs to go back to England and that's it. We don't care about the fact that if she goes back over there, she's not going to be safe or anything like that. We don't actually take those things into consideration. And I think for me that's the most concerning thing. Um, yeah. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> You've brought up a lot of really important stuff and the one I just, I wanted to highlight that I did forget to mention earlier and I'm glad that you've reminded me that we did, um, our research, you know, made it, made it so clear that we need to talk about violence as being much more broad than just physical and that uh, the kinds of abuse that women can suffer include emotional and psychological and financial abuse, which has yeah. recently been added to the legislation in Victoria, as I understand it, uh, like recently in the last 10 years. So it is now... Can, it is now understood by the law to be a crime, but as Nabila points out, the law is a very blunt instrument for dealing with... Um, interpersonal violence, so it's not always it's not always very receptive or responsive. Yeah, I was I was going to say with regards to the police too. When the police have actually been one of your biggest oppressors, why on earth would you go to them? So you know, in Aboriginal communities, I think what is it the the prison population in Northern Territory is about ninety percent Indigenous. Um, you know, in WA, they're imprisoning Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at oh, something like seven times the rate of what they're imprisoning Black people in apartheid South Africa. Um, 
the sorts of abuses perpetrated by the police or by the state in general on certain marginalised groups makes them have absolutely no faith in the systems that are supposed to um, protect them. Like I can imagine, you know, the sheer rate of abuse that the trans community have had or disability community or any other sort of marginalised community would just drive it, you know, that fear of the fact that the people are not going to be looked after within the very systems that are supposed to support them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the police, something that we... I mean, we posted an article about it earlier this month that, that in the US anyway there was a huge study that just found that, that police offend at much higher rates than the rest of the community at, in, in intimate partner violence. So... If the police force is an, is ultimately an extremely masculine like masculinized toxic environment anyway, and then it has perpetrators within it, and then it has all these other kind of structural powers over marginalized people, it's not a solution to say to people, well, why didn't you call the police when you were abused? And and also for women with disabilities, particularly mental health disabilities and um, intellectual disabilities, there's this assumption that. Um, you're not going to be believed, and that is often the experience of women as well. So not only do you face structural and economic barriers to actually get to a place of reporting your violence, but then often you are discredited just because of the very nature of your disability. So we know for women with disabilities, um, we're subject to violence at two and a half times that of women without disabilities. And women with intellectual disabilities are abused at 90% of women with intellectual disabilities have been subject to abuse and two-thirds of that abuse has occurred before they reach the age of 18. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm here tonight to bring that information to the table and, and that intersectionality to the table because I think, well, it's great that as a nation we are having these discussions and that we're having these discussions here tonight. I think we often really forget about the prevalence of violence for women with disabilities and how extremely high it is. And overseas studies have also found that the longer you are in an intimate, long-term relationship, the higher instance of violence you can be subject to as a woman. So at the 10-year point, there's 85% likelihood that you'll be subject to violence. So it increases. And what, what is that about? What messages is the woman with disability receiving on a daily basis from her partner, but also from society as a whole about her self-worth, who she is, her agency in that space? And we know that initially when violence occurs, it can come in the form of financial abuse. And often women with disabilities have the capacity to earn less or get less Centrelink or all that kind of stuff. And so that can creep into a long-term relationship as a way of control and power and violence on that woman. Yeah. So tell us, in, like, in your experience and your, and your opinion, why, why do you think that women with disability experience abuse or violence at so so much higher rates like what is going wrong with the way that women within the disability uh community mm -hmm. are are being cut off from power and ways of of keeping themselves safe like what is what is going wrong well i mean i think society is ableist and by that i mean um, the structures in society that don't allow full and complete access and equal participation for women. 
over people with disabilities. So the way that transport is often inaccessible, housing is inaccessible, all those kind of structural things, um, people have less capacity to earn money and enter the workforce, but also the attitudinal um, stereotypes or ideas that we hold about what it means to have a disability is this assumption that it's a tragedy, that it's profoundly negative, that it's this terrible thing that can befall a person instead of it being just a part of who you are and uh, in many instances a positive part of who I am and other people with disabilities uh, believe that to be true as well and that we need to be looking at the structural changes that we can make to society to make it more inclusive. That it's not something wrong with the body or the mind, it is the way in which society hasn't been created to allow full access for everybody. We're listening to an excerpt from Shoshay Lefemme's discussion on violence and feminism, moderated by Karen Pickering, in discussion with Celeste Little, Nabila Farhat, Jax Brown, Fiona McCormack and Grace Lee, who's about to explain why she thinks men harm women at such staggering rates. We live, we live in, you know, this is a gendered problem and we live in a largely bi-gendered society. So things are seen through that lens. Um, and I guess from my perspective, it, it becomes interesting as to like, you know, again, why is there violence against transgender women perpetrated by men? Because actually, you know, transgender is actually sort of like challenging those very kind of gender stereotypes that we're seeing all the time. Um, my sense, honestly, is that, you know, men do this to women because they wish to retain and assert their power. You know, they, have, they are the powerful gender. But they're obviously extremely anxious about it. You Absolutely. know, like, it, it, it's, it's so fragile. Yeah. That sort of thing, the thing about toxic masculinity, I think about it, and I just think it's supposed to be so powerful and yet the smallest no. thing can challenge it. And so we're, cut, like, the, from the funny things, like um, you can get little um, packets of tissues, you know, that are in, like, black. Men tissues contain it, you know, plastic wrapping because men don't want to carry tiny packets of tissues in a pink or a blue or because that would emasculate them. So you think, well, there's things that are amusing and then all the way through to things that are you know, horrifying and that do, do lead to these, um, these outbursts of, of toxic masculinity, like the, the guy in America who shot, shot all the people because girls wouldn't go out with him and stuff. You know, like this, uh, you know, the, the ultimate endpoints of this, of this fragile toxic masculinity is so often a, an outbreak of violence because it's, it's not to try and empathise with them too much, but imagine what's going on inside the head of someone saying, I can't ever be good enough unless I'm masculine enough that I would commit murder because I feel mm, as though I'm not masculine of, enough. Yeah. Like, it's, just, it's unbelievable what kind of pain and misery people... We, people must be in. I, I think, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. So, you know, I know what's usually blamed um, for violence against women and, um, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's not race. I mean, sorry, let me try again. Race is often blamed, but race is not what causes it because I don't know a single race across the entire world that has alleviated violence against women. Mental health is continually blamed, um, yet 
perfectly, you know, allegedly socially adjusted, non-mentally suffering men continue to perpetrate. Um, and many people with mental illness don't, don't perpetrate. Exactly, exactly. People with mental illness are more likely to be victims than what they are, you know, than what anyone else is. Um, yeah, I... In, in Indigenous at the moment, obviously, we've got alcohol and ice that's being blamed and it's just sort of, well, there's plenty of men who don't, that don't take ice, that don't drink alcohol, that still manage to perpetrate. So it seems to me that continually there's all these other things that they grab at to try and blame for the problem of violence against women without looking at the absolutely bloody obvious, which is masculinity and how toxic it can be and how it manifests in that power sort of, you know, struggle. The the need to assert and to um, to define people as powerful and holding that power and not being threatened by the loss of that power. And Fiona, I think, you know, um, brought up something really important as well about the how it's so often homosocial that it's often about what is happening between men, that women end up being the, the object the, or the pawn that's used in order to prove certain things. But if you go past a work site and a cat called by, by people working there, by blokes working there, it's, it's, they're performing that for each other. It's, you're kind of irrelevant to it, which is why, you know... Um, you're totally dehumanised in that moment. But they're kind of doing it... They wouldn't do it if no-one else was there. That You know, like the car full of guys who drives past and screams out something at you. It's like the rest of the car is the audience, not you. And so it's this kind of odd thing where women are kind of this... Um, yeah, we're, we're the victims, but it's actually about what men are... The conversation... Or, or the, the, the relationships between men that need to be... I guess, looked at as, as much as the relationships between men and women. If you want to check out the work any of these wonderful guests do, you can check our program page for links and other things. For more information about Cherchez La Femme, visit Cherchez La Femme, C-H-E-R-C-H-E-Z-L-A-F-E-M-M-E dot com dot A-U. The next talk will be held on the 5th of April at the Melbourne Spiegelden in Melbourne. The topic will be feminism and class, and you can still get tickets online. If you haven't been able to get all this down, don't worry. I've put links on the Women on the Line program page. What happens when the deluge is over and the flag comes down? What happens when the demon starts to sober? Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenonthelion at gmail.com. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au slash womenonthelion. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Litig. And the feature song for today's episode is Around by the excellent Nairi. Thank you for listening to Women on the Line. I'm Arij Nord and I hope you can tune in again next time. We are gonna fight with me by my side. We are, I are gonna lay your gun on the table. We are, walk away and give me up to the enemy.